This is an ABC podcast. Hi, my name's Kim, and a few years ago I used to be a groom on a horse stud. The horses that we had were Frisian horses, so they were those big, black, beautiful horses with long flowing manes and tails that they often use in um, movies and things. Everyone's favourite stallion, he was a really big 17-hand-plus boy. But for some reason, he hated me. He just hated my guts. He would bite me often, um, and he would wait until you turned around and nip you on the um, behind. Anyway, one day I was bringing him in and he um, actually walked all the way over to me, which he normally didn't do. Normally he would stand in the paddock and wait for you to come and get him. And this day he walked over to me and put his head down into the halter as I was putting it on. And I thought, oh, this is nice. He's being nice today. As he leans his head down, he extends his head further and grabs hold of my nipple. He wouldn't let go. I actually had to belt him over the head to get him to let me go. And um, I swear I thought he had removed my nipple. Luckily, after I had brought him back up to the stables and put him away, I only had a very, very large bruise. So thankfully, my nipple is still here. Thanks. Glad to hear it, Kim. Dr Ann Jones here on Off Track with another instalment of incident reports sent in from the field. And I can't guarantee that everyone's going to come out of this program with their nipples intact. I've been sent heaps of stories of fieldwork fails, bitten by science and farming flops, and all the stories you're about to hear are true. Probably true. They're good stories anyway, and I think that probably one of the most famous fails in recent times got international attention, in fact, involved Annabelle Dorenstein, who is writing a PhD at the Hawkesbury Institute for the Environment at the University of Western Sydney. So I am studying the Christmas Island flying fox, which is a flying fox on Christmas Island, obviously. They're (laughs) critically endangered and the last native mammal on the island, actually. So me and a couple of other PhD candidates are trying to study all different kinds of aspects uh, about them to help their conservation. And what I do specifically is I study their social organization, which basically means who do they interact with, who are their friends, who are their enemies, and how does that influence their life decisions, basically. So one aspect I study is their nighttime behavior, so their foraging behavior. So they eat fruits, and during that time of the year they just love mangoes. So what I did is I set up a a thermal camera close to a mango tree, where I knew they were foraging at night. So I could film them without having to shine lights on them, which would disturb them. Um, But obviously I don't want to stay awake the whole night. So I just set it up with a big battery and let it run and come back in the morning and pick up the camera but um, this particular morning I came back and there was no camera (laughs) because yeah it goes through your mind to think about did someone steal it but it's on the island nobody steals like you leave everybody leaves their doors open they leave the keys in the cars nothing happens there literally nothing so that just that wouldn't happen And then you get closer and you see all these claw marks on the equipment that they left behind. They're called rubber crabs for a reason. They they just steal things and the weirdest things like shoes and head torches and 
one one time one dragged off my first aid kit, for example. Like why why why? <laughs> I don't understand what they're gonna do with it. You you would almost think they have some layer of prized possessions somewhere. Oh, they're, they're, they're big. They're really big. I think they're the largest land crab on Earth. So they, they can get like a kilogram, or oh, no, four kilograms, I think, even. Um, correct me if I'm wrong. As I said, I don't know that much about crabs, but they're heavy. <laughs> and <laughs> and they, they get like a, a meter uh, in span from like leg to leg, basically. So they're, they're big, but they're also really, really colorful. Like you see all these kind of color variations in between like orange and red and purplish and blue even and kind of mixtures of it so it's they're very very beautiful and very alien like as well <laughs> well they have really really strong claws um like they can open coconuts wow. so you can imagine the, the strength they have so basically they can just grab hold of some kind of object with their big claws and slowly walk backwards and just drag it along with them. They're really slow when they when they steal stuff, but yeah, if you're not around and you don't see it. <laughs> um, so the cords uh, that attach the cameras to the battery, they were mangled. There were like scratches on the battery. It's like a big, like a car battery, basically. Oh, I have sworn a lot. <laughs> yeah, they they. they <laughs> I think a lot of people, like when they do field work, they have all these different kind of struggles. Right? For example, camera traps, they have to strap it to the tree so people don't take it or more like human interactions. And for me, the only struggle I have is with these crabs trying to steal my equipment. <laughs> <laughs> so yes, they, they are my uh, my arch nemesis, you could almost say. But yeah, the PhD. <laughs> in a loving kind of way. <laughs> nemesis. You could do an anti-dedication yeah. at the top of your PhD on the dedication page and this is not dedicated <laughs> good idea. to you, Robert Crabb. <laughs> no. Exactly, yeah. <laughs> My name is Dr Marissa Parrott and I'm the reproductive biologist for Zoos Victoria. Before I started working at Zoos Victoria, I studied in South Africa and I was camped out in an area where at night we were often visited by amazing species like porcupines, baboons, hyenas and even lions. And one night the baboons broke in, stole all of our last lots of toilet paper, climbed a very tall tree and toilet papered the entire tree, leaving us with no toilet paper and an extremely big mess to clean up from these cheeky monkeys. I'm Jessie Oliver and I'm going to share with you my story of being chomped on by a lace and albatross. All right, let me paint the picture for you. I just finished an honours degree studying the dishonest signalling of Australian slender crayfish off of North Stradbrook Island and I was looking for a change of pace. I got an email that I had been waiting for for over two years. It's about June in 2008. And I am invited to be a volunteer with the U.S. Fish and Wildlife in the remote area of the Northwest Hawaiian Island Archipelago. So this little island is called Turn Island, like the bird. And... This island, this tiny little speck of sand, which is about 32 acres, 
is basically just a runway just big enough for a Cessna and bushes on either side with a bit of beach line and that's about it but did I want to go there where there's 165,000 seabirds at any given time? Heck yes. So next thing I knew, in August, I was making the long trek from Brisbane, Australia to San Francisco, then San Francisco to Oahu, Hawaii. And then I made the additional trek on a Cessna to Turn Island. Now, I'd never been on a Cessna before, and this one was chock-a-block with supplies, and we probably weren't going to see many planes between then and the next four months. So, it was pretty packed in there. Cessnas are, are pretty intense, but when you're going over a huge, vast expanse of, of ocean, it's fairly exciting to even see that speck of sand that is known as Turn Island. So... When I saw that, it was a thrill to appreciate and realize that we were going to be landing on this tiny runway, which was about 100 meters long. And birds are everywhere, and with the sounds of the plane, they're all going up in the sky. So you can imagine, it was pretty intense. So, as we land, one of the first things that just completely spellbounds me is the number of different seabirds. And I'd never seen most of these species before. And as a bird nerd to the core from early childhood, it was absolutely a dream come true. It really struck me that there was not a nook or cranny on this island that did not have a bird inhabiting it. You had the short tail shearwaters and the storm petrels nesting in burrows in the ground and you had the boobies that were hanging out either in the bushes if they were red-footed or on the ground if they were masked boobies and we also had turns just everywhere we had white fairy turns that would sit on your window ledge at night calling to their mate and they would follow you around. So would the boobies, actually. The red-footeds were quite a curious bird. They'd fly right above your head. And so would some of those sooty terns. They would really follow you for quite a ways while you're doing your counts. So we'd go out there and we'd do surveys every day, checking on these different birds. And, and we'd do a weekly census to understand how the populations were changing. And there was one albatross there when I arrived. This individual was the one left juvenile because the parents leave before the young. The young have to thin down and grow up their feathers and then they take off on their own. This individual was the last remaining. This bird had some fluff on its head still. A little bit of down left. Looked pretty goofy. So a lot of the times you may have heard albatross be referred to as goonie birds. But until you've seen them, you can't fully appreciate the awkward mechanics that they have when they try to locomote or move on land. They are fantastic birds. It's so majestic in flight and so goony on land. Anyway, this individual bird caught my attention right away because I'd never seen an albatross before. And after a few weeks of watching this bird, 
We had a flight coming in unexpectedly to fix our water system. Why did our water system need to get fixed? Well, our water tasted like guano. It's not a deal that's tasting like bird poop. And we needed to have it repaired, so we had a flight coming in with some additional supplies and all of us volunteers were out there waiting for the, the supply plane to come. And I realized as I can see overhead this plane coming in that my little friend the Goonie Bird was sitting on the runway and that he needed to be moved. And I was the closest to this bird. And I looked over and I yelled to my colleagues, what do I do? And as I said this, they told me, just pick it up like a football. Which anyone that knows me knows that I am the least athletic person on the face of the planet. So telling me that, well, this was a whole different ball game. I knew from my years of experience handling songbirds as well as birds of prey that one of the most important things to consider is to get those wings, especially in windy conditions like on this island, tucked in right away. And I knew you grabbed the business end. You always grab that bill because you don't want to get bit. I raced up to this bird swooped it into my arms, tucked its wings tightly, grabbed its bill. However, what I did not appreciate in its full capacity is just how strong its bill was and its neck. And how quickly it ripped that bill right out of my hands and latched onto my opposite arm. I ran off the runway with the bird just in the nick of time for the plane to arrive. But as I let the bird go, it was still latched onto my arm. And you know, I was just feeling pretty victorious to have gotten this bird off the runway. So it didn't really bother me that much. Once the adrenaline wore off though, I started to become a little bit more concerned because I realized just how remote we were and I didn't want to get an infection. I quickly went into this military barracks and looked for things to sterilize my new, newly acquired wound. And it was pretty deep because they have a fairly hooked bill, turns out. but. It is by far the coolest scar I have or will ever have in my entire life. Eventually, a whole heck of a lot of other albatross arrived on the island and we spent quite a long time banding them and, and recording which individuals were back that had been banded prior. Watching albatross do their courtship dances is about one of the most fascinating things I've ever seen in my life. So if you ever have the opportunity to witness it, hearing those clacking bills and those sky moves and all the other dance moves those birds have, it really was phenomenal. Unfortunately, the first egg for the season hatched three days after I left, so there was a little bit of heartache to even leave that island. But it was an incredible experience, and every time I look at this scar, I am fondly reminded of those four months spent on this remote bird island.
Jesse Oliver and the recordings there of all the birds, also from Jesse. What a place. What a bird. What a hooked beak. Hello, everyone. Uh, so my name is Graham Cumming, and I'm a professor at James Cook University in Australia. <clears throat> and I'm a landscape ecologist and conservation biologist. I've spent a lot of my professional career doing fieldwork outside. So one of the projects that I've run was on waterbirds in southern Africa. And the question we were trying to answer is how much avian influenza is present in that population or those populations of birds. And we worked across uh, Zimbabwe, Mozambique, Botswana and South Africa. And when you test birds for avian influenza, what you have to do is you, you catch them by whatever means. And then you have to hold their mouth open and get a swab down their throat. Birds have got a, a little flap at the back of their throat that protects their um, breathing tubes so they don't swallow food into their lungs. So um, you have to pull the tongue forward and then there's a little hole at the back there that you have to very gently dip a swab into. If you do it too roughly, you can damage the bird. So one of our field sites was in the Western Cape, near Cape Town. And typically you put out traps the night before, bait them, uh, you check them at midnight and then you get some sleep and then you go again in the morning, early in the morning before the sun comes up. So uh, on this particular morning we went in really early and just as the sun was coming up over the sewage treatment ponds at Strandfontein, we got to one of the walk-in traps and there were four or five Egyptian geese in there. So, so then I realized there was something else a bit lower but also quite large uh, down on the ground and it was a white-breasted cormorant. Well, cormorants are quite large birds and they're, they're vicious. They've got a very sharp beak that they use for catching fish, of course, and uh, it's got a sharp hook at the end and like many other fish-eating birds, the beak's like a razor. It's very sharp on the sides. It's the first time I've done a large cormorant like this, so uh, fish it out of the bag really carefully, work out where the neck is first, uh, slide a hand down to the head, grab the head, grab the body, lift it out, and I put it on my lap so that I can put a band on it. So they've got these short stubby legs, which makes it hard to hold them. And then as soon as you start handling the bird, it starts uh, excreting fish or ingesting fish out both ends. It throws up fish, it poops fish out the back. Um, so you've got a slippery, slimy thing, and it's got a really long neck. So the, the neck is full of muscle. It's what it uses for pursuing and catching fish. And uh, so it's like trying to hold a snake in one hand, and then these stubby little legs that keep kicking. They've got quite sharp claws too. Anyway, so I'm there trying to abandon this thing. I've got one of my... Uh, assistant's actually a postdoc holding the head of the bird. You have to swab the cloaca first, and then I'm just about to start swabbing the, the head. So I'm reaching out for a swab, and when my postdoc uh, loses his grip on the head, and that head comes round, and it swings, and it's I, I kind of vaguely see it coming out of the corner of my eye. I bring my arm back quickly, but not quite fast enough, and it leaves a long scratch across my arm from the hook on its beak, and takes a chunk about the size of my thumb out of my out of my sweatshirt. Anyway, so we get it quickly quickly back under control and um, finish processing the bird, get the swab we need. But when we open the beak to have a look, um, there's still a tiny bit of sweatshirt attached to the to the bill, which we have to then remove before we can keep swabbing the bird. Look. It's not just your best pullover that's at risk from water or seabird beaks. My name is Bill Bateman. I'm an ecologist at Curtin University in Perth. 
So this story happened a long time ago, though it's, it's very, very clear-cut in my memory, still a long time later. So uh, I was still an undergraduate at uni in the uh, UK, uh, so I guess that would be the early 90s. And a group of us had organised, and I, I use the word organised, it wasn't very organised, so we, we, we took ourselves on a trip to Madeira and Port Santa, which are islands out in the uh, Atlantic, and we were going there to ban seabirds, and so... What was exciting is that we went to several small, little, uninhabited, waterless islets off the coast of Port Santo where we were catching and banding these lovely little birds, these little pet bulwars petrels, and also these huge, smelly, bitey, chorus shearwaters that bred on the island. And looking back now, it really makes my blood run cold. We were very disorganized. We didn't have enough torch batteries, so we were stumbling around in the dark because the birds came in at night to um, nest on the cliffs. They would go down burrows. We didn't take enough food. We didn't take enough water, so we were so hungry all the time. We'd be on the island for three or four days at a time, and we obviously couldn't wash because we didn't have enough water, and these birds would grab the birds and they'd crap all over us and puke all over us and they were eating fish so it was all this horrible stinky musty fish oil and it was just foul but you know we, we were teenagers so we thought it was fun and um, we were grabbing these birds and I wasn't a trained bird bander but I would catch the birds and then hold them until the, our trained bird banders could do that and I'd grab these Corey's shearwaters and these are big these are the size of gulls and they have a long beak with a sharp hooked end so I had one shearwater under one arm and another under the other and it was pitch black on this cliff face and there's just like a few sort of soft beams of light from the torches and I'm just waiting for someone to come and take the birds so that they can band them and it was a warm night so I just had like shorts and a t-shirt and, and a raincoat on and one of these Shearwater suddenly just went, right, I'm just, you know, I've had it with this. It was shrieking at me, and then suddenly it stopped and just bit straight through the layers of cloth and straight into my nipple, straight into my right nipple, and then it just stayed there, didn't move, occasionally like growling for about 15 minutes. And I don't remember it hurting that much, but there was just blood running down, <laughs> down over my chest through my shorts and down my leg. Now, I didn't see it in the dark. The next day, it looked like I'd been like a stabbing victim and it just like dried all, all down me. But what was horrible was that someone came to take the bird from me. And before I could say, oh, it, it's, it's bitten through my nipple, they just pulled it away, took it from my arm, pulled it away. And there was this little ripping, popping sound as it came out through the flesh, out through the layers of cloth. And I can still hear it. I can still remember that sound. That little is it just came out, and uh, it healed. I have no scar. I, I remember it. <laughs> I kept the raincoat for many years because I was an impoverished student, and I had to patch it on that side because the little hole. But I can still remember that as it just came through the flesh and then ripped through. So yeah, um, happy days. <laughs> And a big thanks to Alain Vernot, Marcel Gil Velasco, and Rinse van der Vliet for all the seabird noises that you just heard. And a big sorry to Bill for playing so many calls of the quarry shearwater, which must, you know, you know, make your nipple tingle. 
Also, a huge bow to Frank Lambert, whose sound I used for the Christmas Island robber crab story at the very start of the program. And thank you to everyone who's submitted stories and sounds so far. You doing this has actually enabled me to continue making off track from isolation. We're not travelling to record at the moment, so please don't be afraid to send something in track at abc.net.au. Everyone is welcome to submit, not just scientists. Anyone who has a love of the great outdoors and a good story, I want to hear from you. I've got more to come in this series in a couple of weeks' time, I think. There'll be stories which start like this. It was about six o'clock on a gloomy spring evening when I arrived at the house in Richmond. But it ends up like this. The seal puppies have teeth that are like little needles. The culprits were looking down at us from the trees. My scuba regulator was ripped out of my mouth. It's It just has like this amazing suction capacity. And Matt was like, oh my God, don't touch that. At the last moment, the frog jumped. And boom! Anne Jones signing off for today with a reminder to meet me here at the same time next time and remember the OHS paperwork because that's when I'll take you somewhere else. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio, and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.